Hi, everyone, and welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's neuroscience research podcast. Today, we're talking to Consuelo Walsh Bass. Cello is the professor and John S. Dunn Foundation Distinguished Chair in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences, Director of Psychiatric Gene Genetics Program, Director of UT Health Brain Collection, Co-Director of the Translational Psychiatry Program at the University of Texas McGovern School of Medicine in Houston. Welcome. Thank you very much for having me. So Cello studies the genetics and epigenetics of psychiatric disorders to try to reveal the genetic, translational, transcriptional substrates of these disorders in human, both in samples from postmortem tissue and also in cells derived from living humans suffering from them. Uh, with us today is uh, Melanie Carlos from UTSA's Department of Neuroscience Developmental and Regenerative Biology. Hi. And me, I'm your host, Charlie Wilson. So, uh, Cello, the psychiatric diseases are hard for biologists. For most of the diseases, we can't find any structural abnormality of the brain or any consistent genetic signature uh, or any biochemical sign of pathology. Sorry. Disorders are at least partly inherited, but there's no gene test that could tell me whether I have one of them or not. Not yet. Not yet. That's a hopeful, that's a hopeful way of talking about it. I think it'll it. happen, yes. And for a long time, it's been said there was a strong environmental component of causation, but these have never really been identified in a certain way. And there's never even been a mechanism that was satisfactory to biologists about explaining how environment and genetics interact to, in the brain. Correct. In a mechanistic explanation. So... All of this, it sounds like you're convinced all of this may change, so why don't you offer us some hopeful ideas about what have been, what's been learned from genetics and epigenetics about, about this and that could get us out of this difficult situation. Okay, yes. Um, so <clears throat> there is a genetic component and an environmental component for sure for all mental health disorders uh, across the board. The genetic component <clears throat> the contribution of the genetic component versus the environmental component really depends on the disorder. So, for example, schizophrenia and bipolar disorder are considered the most highly heritable. That means that their genetic contribution is, that the genetic contribution in those two are, is pretty strong. But the environment is still present and a very important role. And then you go down the board, and for example, for depression, it's about 50% genetic and 50% environmental. So, for all disorders, it's really important to understand that both environment and genetics are present, and you really cannot disentangle the two, I think, when you consider the biological mechanisms, what are the underpinnings of these disorders. So, um, the genetic component has been more studied than the environmental one. Uh, as far as genetics, I think we are making progress recently. This has happened in recent years with the advent of consortiums. So, for example, the Psychiatric Genetics Consortium. This has been uh, groups of scientists from all over the world. They basically pool samples together of, of patients from different countries and pulling these samples together and sequencing their genetic makeup. And in that way, we've been able to find what we consider candidate genes. So we cannot call them yet causative genes because we don't know 
that there are the genes for sure that are that, uh, that are causing the disease, but it's pretty credible their association in these using these large sample sizes. We've finally been able to identify some. So this is happening for schizophrenia, for bipolar disorder, to a less extent in the other disorders. But the thought is that we will get there. We have to pull more samples, perhaps, and you know, type more people. But eventually, I think that uh, the combination of the genes that are causing the different disorders, we're going to be able to have a better understanding of that. Do we have an <clears> idea <throat> about the scope of that? I mean, when you say combination of genes, yes. are you talking about 12 genes or three or 1,200? Very good questions. Actually, hundreds. So for schizophrenia, just to give an example, we're, I think, now up to 240 or so. I don't know the exact number. I think the latest paper is about to come out soon. But around 240 different genes that have been associated with the illness. It doesn't mean that a particular patient is going to have all the different 240 genes so in, in its particular makeup. No, so different individuals are going to have a different combination of those genes. So <clears throat> the way I think of it is that it's, it's not necessarily, we don't really need to think about the actual gene. What is the gene that in this causing the disease? But what are those genes impacting on? What is the network that they're functioning in? What are they impacting? What are they disrupting? That's what I think we need to look at. And that's where the commonality is going to be. The different genes in one patient versus another are going to be impacting the same network. So as a result, network <clears throat> means biochemical network. Biochemical network, so biochemical it's, pathway. So as a yes. result, there's some biochemical identifiable defect after all. Absolutely, yes. It's just we, that it's being affected one way in some patient and a different way in some other. No, I think that the biochemical pathways are, that's the common thread. So the ones that are coming out in schizophrenia, for example, no real surprise there, but the glutamatergic pathway, the dopaminergic pathway, immune signaling, immune system response, those are altered. Now, there is a big question and a big debate in terms of whether should we start using these clinically to, you know, diagnose or to identify the risk of a particular patient. And that's up for debate. I, some people feel strongly that at least for schizophrenia, yes, we can start doing it. Other people feel that no, we're not there yet. And the reason that I, I actually believe we're not there yet is because we need to study what those genes are doing. How are they impacting the networks? How are they disrupting the cell signaling pathways, the brain system, and then how are they leading to the behavior, which is ultimately what we want to understand. Now, this is where the environment comes in. <clears throat> um, I think that the understanding now is that, yes, the environment plays an important role. And we know this, just to give you uh, some history, we know this from twin studies. This is the way we, had it. we figure out heritability of the disorders. Two identical twins in schizophrenia about 60 to 70 percent of the time will both of them have the disorder. So what does that mean? That it's not 100 percent genetic. The environment plays an important role. In the other disorders, for example, in depression, the environment plays a much more important role, right? So we need to understand how is it that the environment impacts our genome, how the genomes are up expressed, are they upregulated, downregulated, and how does that, in combination with the genetic makeup, that we inherit lead then to the disorder. So when I say environment, what do we mean by environment? That's a big question. Everything, basically. Everything that we do, we know now, 
<clears throat> the way we live, how, what we eat, whether we exercise or not, how much we sleep, whether we use drugs, whether we have traumatic events happen in our lives, all that is going to impact our epigenetics. So what are epigenetics? Is epi meaning the way the chromatin structure is organized, which impacts how our genes are, whether or not they become expressed or not expressed, whether, they not, whether or not they get turned on or off, let's just put it that way, and they become protein, which is what genes do, right? The environment, everything that we do will impact our, our epigenome, and that, in combination with the genetic makeup, leads to the disorder in some individuals. And I say it's important because we are all exposed to stress. We all do things. We all have things happen in our lives, but not all of us develop the disorder, right? So how does the environment impact us? And then how does that lead to disorder? That's a really important question. So I don't know if, Melly, you well, have any comments. And I mean, I, th I think <clears throat> something that's interesting as well is it's not even just what we're doing now or what happened in our childhood. Uh, this, this starts any exposures in utero um, will not only affect that, that, that fetus, but will also affect their offspring. Absolutely. So we're also thinking about the, these multi-generational effects uh, of the environment can impact um, disease too. Yeah, that is uh, a key point because that, there's this question about missing heritability. <laughs> so that's like a seems like a detective thing, but you know we know, like I say, that these disorders are genetic and they're heritable, right? But so far, for example, for schizophrenia, we've identified 240 genes. The heritability that they explain is very, very small. So there's this what is it, five percent or something like that? Yeah, or? I mean, for, for, I think for <clears throat> most complex diseases, the psychiatric disorders are, are, are low, but even for, for some, like it, it's at the at most, it's about twenty percent of yeah. uh, you know the effect of, of genes can be explained. So some of what we call so, uh, genetics is really epigenetics. It's it is the environment of our parents and their parents. Absolutely, yeah. Yes. And, and so I think yeah, a lot of this a lot of this impact on the heritability. It's related to genetics. Uh, I think there's also these, these pleiotropic effects. Yes. You know, there's these interactions between genes. And between also epigenetic variants, variants you know. Again, one other point that needs to be made is that most the what they the genes that we've identified so far have been based on what we call genome-wide association studies, which so far have been using SNP arrays that are common SNPs. So we all have single nucleotide polymorphisms in our genome in our makeup, right? They're called common because many of us have them and nothing happens. So the genetic, the GWAS study, the genome wide association studies are based on those arrays. We're still missing what's called the rare variants, you know, that are not so far being taken into account. So that's another explanation for the missing heritability. So there are several explanations, you know, the pleiotropy, the rare variant, we need to identify more rare variants, and then the the inherited genetic, the epigenetic inheritance that's also. So can we take important. the same approach to understanding epigenetics that you take to genetics? You identify the epigenetic modification sites. Yes. yes. They are going to be finite in number. You give each one of them a name. You study each, their relationship with well, them. Well, there are different. <laughs> yes and no. Then are we getting into a lot more complication because the epigenetics, there's 
different mechanisms of epigenetic modifications. So one is DNA methylation. That is like, you can think of it like a pin on the, you, you, the chromatin, the way the genes are arranged, they're like in a ball, basically, in a big, you know, ball. And the methyl group, I like to think of it kind of like a pin. The methyl groups get attached to these CPG islands on the genome. And if that methyl group is there, if the pin is there, the gene will not get turned, will not get expressed. The transcription factors cannot come in in there and bind, and they cannot do their job. If the methyl group is removed, now the gene gets expressed. So that's one way of, of, of epigenetic, uh, you know, regulation. But there's millions of CPG islands on our genome. More than there are genes are equal or uh, fewer? More. More. Yes. More than there are <laughs> genes. More. Well, and it's important also to remember that, you know, there's this common mechanism that Cello is describing of, of gene regulation by DNA methylation, but then you also have DNA methylation that, that's not at these sites um, that is associated with disease, but we don't really know what that does yes, yet. Yes, exactly. Um, but theoretically, yes. What, so what, the, bit, the thing you were disputing is that I said it was finite. Well, and, it, and it kind of is. Of course so it's finite, but we can maybe measure it's these. effectively too large count and to uh, catalog. And no, not, not necessarily. We are doing it at the methylation level. There's now arrays that we can measure. We can we can look can at the methylation level at a particular gene or mm -hmm. by sequencing. So yes, you can do that. You can look at the methylation level in a disease state compared to a non-disease state and then see, okay, these, this, these genes are more or less methylated compared to the control group. And yeah, then they can become markers. So we learned some stuff doing that. Is that a thing that has helped? That is something that is happening as we speak. And, and a lot of people do that, but I think there's also the added complication that uh, epigenetics itself is is variable throughout the lifetime because of so, the environment. So yes. if you if you measure and this this DNA methylation, for example, if you measure it today and measure it tomorrow, it might be different. It might be different. Yes. But if it were to um, cause me to become schizophrenic, then it must be relatively stable. Yeah, it is. So but some some are stable, some are less stable, and that's the yes. idea, is trying to capture what could be stable, but then what's... But also, when are these changes important? So we talk about a lot of psychiatric diseases uh, manifest in either late adolescence or early adulthood, uh, but probably they actually start much younger. Yes. So you could potentially have these epigenetic changes occurring during childhood, potentially even in utero, that may help to dictate what will happen in early adulthood. But by the time you reach early adulthood, it, it, that epigenetic mark may have gone, may away. Have gone away. Right, but so, it had an influence at that particular time in terms oh, of being developed. frightening from a discovery point of view. It does. It's so it <laughs> certainly complicating. Now, let's make it even more complicated. Then you have microRNA regulation, which is another mechanism of epigenetic regulation. That is, it is itself a whole other world. The microRNAs are these small RNA molecules that bind to an RNA and they can regulate how or not, whether or not the RNA that gets translated into a protein or not. So now there's work trying to identify microRNAs as biomarkers and there's also thousands of microRNAs. And that's even more complicated because one microRNA can target many different genes 
in one particular gene can be targeted by many different microRNAs. So you need to, you know, again, finding the microRNAs that are relevant for a particular disorder, that is also developmentally important. The timing is important. At what period of time did it happen? All that matters. But I think there is hope because more and more I think now that we are having an understanding of how these things work. That is something that we didn't know just maybe 10, 15 years ago. So now we're understanding it. We have methods to measure them. And the bioinformatic analysis of all these different omics uh, is advancing. So when we do each of these layers, I like to call them the DNA methylation layer, the microRNA level, the transcriptome level, if you can measure all of those in, in your subjects, and your not, in not subjects, individuals, the people that have the disease compared to people that do not, then that can give you a hint of networks. Again, all we want to do is what are the networks, what are the pathways, the biological pathways that are altered by the combination of all these different levels of analysis. Then that can give you, start to give you ideas of the alterations that are happening. So it's a huge dimensional problem, but of course one of the things we're getting better at is it's dimensional problems. Dimensional so, problems, yes. Uh, can we collect all of that information about one person? Yes, we can. Person's different from each, each other person, person which is, is a whole other issue. Yes. And and so that means that one could take you know modern data analysis techniques and apply them to find, to pull out the pattern of epigenetics and genetics that goes with that. Yeah. Is that Absolutely. science fiction or is that no. something that's happening? I think right it's now. happening right now. You, I mean, you can, and, and there are people that take these approaches to study all of these different levels. Um, but of course, you know, it all costs money. So trying to do that on the, these large scales to have enough individuals, um, you know, to, to really identify you know, any kind of genetic or epigenetic variant contributing to a disease is, that's where the difficulty that's, lies. That is a limitation. But again, I think that now, to me, the answer to that, one of the answers is collaboration. I think collaboration across scientists is extremely important. And we've learned that. We cannot do everything on our own. There's no way that we can eat one person look at thousands of individuals. So collaborating, making our science known, publishing data sets of these omic levels, making them publicly available so that then another scientist can take that data and combine it with their his or her data. And now that's how you grow science and you eventually come up with the answer, I think by pulling all the everything together and collaborating. That's, so that's a, a big thing for that's me. That's a, a sort of, what would I call it, brute force or data-driven approach. But traditionally, people have used a shortcut, a trick. You know, you get enough information about one constellation of things that's a subset of genes or epigenetic factors, and then you think, maybe it's really there, and I could disregard all the others and, and just bore down into that one. Yes. So um, are there candidates like that? Are there for anyone? You'd have to, I guess this would be specific for each one of the psychiatric disorders, but 
is that approach making progress too? Um, or do we have to know everything before we know anything? Oh, right. <laughs> so okay. I, I, I think there's, you know, that there's definitely um, people that are focused on these candidate genes and understanding what they do. And that's a, that's a very important piece of Absolutely. the puzzle. Um, but it's important to remember that even when we have these candidate genes, you know, you might you might have these, you know, two, for example, again, going back to schizophrenia, you might have these 240 genetic variants that are associated with the disease. But any one person is going to have a handful of those variants that might be associated with disease for them. Mm -hmm. And a different person will have a different handful of variants mm -hmm. associated with the disease. And so when, when you find these candidate genes or these genetic variants that, that you want to understand what, what is the function, it, it can be relevant to some people and not others. And how it's relevant is also, it, it's contributing just like probably a fraction of a percent towards the disease. So the effect of that, that variant is going to be very small. Um, so while it helps to understand the function, it, you need to know collectively, like how do all of these things function together? So I, can, yeah. I can see that's true if all of these 240 genes are operating independently. But if they were not, actually clapped yes. together into groups of 20, and so I could have the disease by having, uh, you know, uh, what would it be, 12? Probably, <laughs> yeah. 12 of them, one in each of those 20 groups. Yes. And then somebody else would have a completely different set yes. of them, but will also have one in each of those 20 groups. Mm -hmm. If it was, of course, I'm just making that up. But if but, it was like that, then it isn't as bad as it sounds. No, I, I think that, yes, each of them is going to have an individual, individually a small effect. But like you say, the com it's the combination of them. And how do they work together to impact and to uh, you know, contribute to the disease? I think, in my opinion, the induced protopotent stem cell model is actually, for in my opinion, uh, very powerful. Because that was a limitation that we had before. We could not access a the brain of a, of a living individual to be able to study cells, which is what we need to be doing. Uh, but now we can take a skin biopsy or a blood sample from a living individual. We know that person's makeup, genetic makeup. We know which variant, we will know from genotyping which variants that person has. So let's say it has the 12 of those, 20 of those variants. We can make, we can obtain a virtual biopsy, basically, and a virtual brain biopsy by making neurons now from that individual and by making organoids, so brain organoids. And now we can understand how those variants are contributing to disruption of that brain function in that one individual with this particular genetic makeup. And then we can compare it to another individual with a different genetic makeup, but that theoretically, in my opinion, I believe the impact is going to be the same. As I said, the, net, the pathways are the same. So what you can then, be, what you should be able to see eventually, I think this is what we're going to be able to do, is see that the disruption in the two patients with the two different genetic makeups of different sets of genes leading to the same outcome. And so that, I think, is going to be the way that we now understand how are the brain systems being altered. And then we can perhaps identify targets for treatments, which is, I think, that 
goal is right we, we can identify the different combinations of genes how are they working and come up with treatments to then perhaps reverse that damage that's being caused so i think it can happen with this the technology now that is available that making it possible to obtain brain biopsies. So a side effect of that might be that you would see the defect in the function of the cell, of a cell that you had derived from some patient, or in the function of an organoid. I don't know yes. exactly how we assess function in organoids, but I'm sure there's a way. And, the, and one could just set about to find out what is happening at the cellular level in addition to genetic Yes, we can look at, uh, for example, let's just say d different outcomes, the dendritic, dendrite extension, and we know that that is altered in schizophrenia, right? Uh, or a an, in bipolar disorder, uh, you know, cal calcium signaling. We can look at those outcomes in 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 our cell model, in our iPSC-derived model. And that is theoretically because of the makeup that that person has, the genetic makeup. So, what we, would a schizophrenic neuron look like? I mean, I'm, I don't mean to be glad. No, no, actually, <laughs> one of the first studies that came out by Christian Bernard in 2011 was they showed that they took schizophrenia fibroblasts, fibroblasts from, from five schizophrenia patients, I believe, in five controls, made neurons, and they showed that the neurons and the connections between those neurons was very, very diminished in the patient's neurons compared to the controls. That has something that had been seen at the imaging level with, and looking at the dendritic spines. So now with the, with the cell model, they were able to kind of validate that. So the idea is that the synapses, the connections between the neurons in a schizophrenia patient is, is impaired compared to a control. And this actually comes to the, to the environment and to the, this, the reason why a theory is that why is it that we do not see the manifestation of the symptoms until adolescence? If, in fact, it was a developmental disorder that happened early in life, one theory is because it's during adolescence that we have the process of what's called synaptic pruning. So we're born with a lot more connections between neurons than we actually need. And during adolescence, it's like a tree, those, those connections get cut, get trimmed, and they they go down. That's a natural process. And it happens during adolescence. But imagine if a person with schizophrenia maybe was able to get by before because they had those extra connections, but now when they lose them, the manifestation of symptoms starts to occur. That's a theory. It's a hypothesis, but it's one that kind of makes sense with what we're seeing in terms of the synaptic density uh, impairment that is something that's a hypothesis in a is coming out through the genomic studies, right? Uh, so what, is the, what are the prospects for treatment? I mean, the, assuming that we could identify that cellular mechanisms, these are things that, w that could be counteracted <clears throat> somehow? Or? So, I, yes, I believe so, that by identifying the specific targets, the medications that we currently have for schizophrenia, for bipolar disorder, for the other mental health disorders, right now they're not targeting the actual causes of the disease. They're they alleviate symptoms. The symptoms. <laughs> but it's like giving aspirin when you have a fever. We know the fever is not the cause of the whatever illness you're having, right? It treats the symptom, the fever. 
that's kind of the, the same thing that's happening with our mental health medications currently. And that hasn't changed for years. It made a little bit of modifications to particular medications, and those are the antipsychotics that we currently have. By identifying the actual genes that are involved and the actual mechanisms by which those genes function, the idea is that then now we can develop medications that actually target those genes specifically and help to reverse the problem and help to treat the patients. And there's this, it's, off, it's sort of a used a lot word of, you know, patient, you know. Like the personalized medicine. Personalized medicine, yeah. that's. And, you know, some people say, oh, that's what you, you know, sort of a phrase, catchphrase. But I believe that's going to be the case with schizophrenia. And it happens with cancer. They're doing it already. Cancer, there's different genes that are causing the cancer, and they already are able to target the specific genes in that particular patient to kind of tailor the treatment. I think that's what's going to happen with mental health disorders eventually. Um, we will get there. I feel Hopefully. a lot better already. <laughs> <laughs> I have hope. <laughs> So thank you very much. Thank um, you. Thank you for uh, having me. Cello and thank you, Melanie. Melanie for inviting me to be here today. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Show.